Good evening, everybody. Good evening. If you would, get your Bibles out, open them up to the book of Romans. We will be studying from the book of Romans one more time tonight. And we will, of course, be in the final chapter, the 16th chapter. But I actually need to begin all the way back in chapter 1 tonight. So turn back, if you will, with me to Romans, the first chapter. And let's all be looking together in this great, great epistle. What a hot and muggy day it has been. Uh, Cody was singing, that's leading us in that song, Heavenly Sunlight. And boy, I tell you, throughout the afternoon, I was asking, Lord, can we have some heavenly shade? And it does look like we're starting to get some heavenly shade as the evening uh, hours are approaching. But it is a good day nonetheless because it's the first day of the week. It is the Lord's Day, just my favorite day uh, every single week because I get to be with God's people. And I hope you have that same mind as well that we are just doing just one of the very greatest things that we can possibly do here upon planet Earth. And that is to assemble before God and to give Him praise and worship. Let's read together in Romans chapter 1 as we look here at this introduction of the letter once again. Paul begins in Romans the first chapter in verse 7 when he says, To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Did anybody ever watch the Waltons growing up? I ask that question realizing that there is a whole generation now of kids who have no idea what the Waltons are, who they are. You might be thinking of Sam Walton or the Walton family, the people behind Walmart. That's not the Waltons that I'm talking about. The Waltons was a TV show. It was a TV family. And I can remember watching the Waltons. I'm old enough to remember watching some Waltons programming. I remember on our cable channel growing up in Quail, Kentucky, it was channel number 10. That was the family channel. And of an evening, right around, I don't know, 6, 7 o'clock every night was when the Waltons would be on. And it probably is one of the few shows on television that probably ever I feel like I actually could recommend to somebody and say, hey, you ought to watch that show. It was clean. It was homespun. They encourage good, wholesome family values. But my favorite thing about the Waltons was the way the show always ended. Do you remember that? Do you remember how every episode of the Waltons always ended? The camera would pan back from this big two-story Walton house out there on the Walton farm. And you'd see the lights as it's panning back. You'd see the lights go off in the windows of all the different bedrooms. And as the lights are blinking off, you would then hear each of the different family members calling out to one another and they would say, Good night, Mama. Good night, Mary Ellen. Good night, Grandpa. Good night, John Boy. And that always provided just a very nice, warm ending to each episode. Well, Romans chapter 16, I think, is going to provide a nice, warm ending to this epistle. Because for 15 chapters, Paul has been getting after it. Paul has pounded away with some heavy, heavy doctrine. He has hit hard with some hard admonitions for this church that was divided and fragmented and they weren't getting along as the body of Christ. But what we can sometimes forget in the middle of all that is we hear all that correction and we hear all that rebuke and we hear all that direct teaching and, and doctrine sorts of stuff. What we sometimes forget is that what we're reading is a letter. A letter that was sent to people, ordinary people, just like you and me. People who were, in the words of chapter 1 verse 7, people who were loved by God and called to be saints. And so in the 16th chapter now, Paul's going to bring it full circle. 
He's going to bring all of that back home and he's going to make things very, very personal for the people who make up that congregation. There are no less, if you took the time this afternoon to actually read chapter 16, you may have noticed there are no less than two dozen names mentioned in Romans chapter 16. Many of them are hard to pronounce. Many of those are names that we just have a whole lot of trouble with and don't identify with. Many of them we know very, very little about, but the very fact that their names are recorded in sacred Scripture tells us that God knows who they are. They were important to the Lord. And maybe even on a more practical level, this long list of howdies and good to see you and good night, John boys, maybe this is a way for Paul to kind of build some rapport with the congregation. It's a way for him to build a bridge to this group that he is very, very concerned about. I think we do well to remember that Paul, Paul has never visited this congregation in Rome. And so this extensive list of greetings here in chapter 16 really kind of serves as a way to make his message be more well received. This message of unity, this message of togetherness that he's been preaching for 15 chapters, it will give it more credibility, it will give it more influence if the recipients of that letter realize, hey, he knows us. And we kind of feel like we know him. And so, hey, we need to take seriously the things that Paul has been trying to tell us all along. In fact, in a lot of ways, this list of names is very helpful for us because it even gives us some insight as to kind of the demographical makeup of this very, very diverse group of Christians. It all ends up forming what I think is a very fitting conclusion to Paul's gospel. And I should say, please don't be thrown off by me referring to it as Paul's gospel If you just jump ahead to chapter 16, verse 25, look at what Paul says. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel. Yes, it is God's gospel. It's Jesus' gospel. But there is a sense in which this presentation of the gospel, it is very unique and it is very personal as it comes from the pen of Paul. But it is a fitting end for this book. This book that has been a book for brethren and about brethren and designed to encourage brethren in their walk together to be united in Christ Jesus. I'm going to break this chapter into three sections this evening with the first 16 of those verses just being Paul's kind of stroll through the church directory at Rome. That's kind of what I envision. Paul's just got his Roman Church of Christ directory and he's got it opened up and he's just kind of going through, looking and seeing all the names, maybe even some pictures of the people that he knows and has some association with. Let's just read a little bit here beginning in verse 1. Chapter 16, verse 1. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Sincrea, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints, and that you will help her in whatever she may need from you, for she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. So Paul begins, gives the first couple of verses to this woman, this sister, by the name of Phoebe. We note that she is from Sincrea, which is actually one of the towns that is neighbor, uh, neighboring to Corinth. Corinth is the city where we believe and all the evidence points to that Paul is writing the letter from. Paul's writing from Corinth somewhere in the seam of Acts 19 and 20. And he's sending this to the church at Rome. And it seems as if the courier of the letter itself is this sister Phoebe. That's kind of the way that it reads in those first two verses. I think that alone, if, if Phoebe's the one who's delivering the letter, she's the postmaster here, 
I think that alone tells us something about just how important this sister was to Paul. Now, unfortunately, we don't always get to focus on the good things about Phoebe because what usually becomes the topic of discussion out of verses 1 and 2? If you've discussed Bible sorts of things with Bible scholars and things like that with those sorts of people for very long, what you'll come to find is there's lots of controversy about verses 1 and 2. Namely, that word that's used there in verse 1, that she is a servant. A servant of the church. There's lots of discussion about that word because the Greek word there is the word diakonos. And while that word is translated in most places in the New Testament simply as servant, there are a couple of places where it's translated differently. It's translated to talk about an office that is the office of a deacon. Philippians chapter 1 verse 1. 1 Timothy chapter 3 which outlines the qualifications for a deacon. And so the fact that Paul says that she is a servant of the church, she's a diakonos of the church, it's caused a lot of folks to think that, well, maybe she's a deacon. Maybe she is a deaconess, if you will, of the congregation. Well, I think there's lots that could be said about that. I think there's lots of arguments against that. I simply am just going to say, number one, that I don't think that that rendering of that word there proves that somehow Phoebe was a deaconess in a local congregation. I think that really just sidetracks the whole point of what Paul is writing here. In fact, if somebody can explain to me from 1 Timothy chapter 3 that talks about the qualifications for a deacon, if someone can explain to me how a woman can be a husband of a wife, then yeah, we'll sit down and we'll talk about how Phoebe could have possibly been a deacon in the Lord's church. But until we can get that to somehow work with the things that Paul writes elsewhere, I just don't think that's an argument worth having. What we need to simply focus on is that this sister, she is a servant of others. She is a valuable servant of the church. And so while this passage does not prove that she is a deaconess, what it does prove is it proves that women render valuable service in the kingdom of God. And when you just look at Paul's words, giving these two verses to this sister, it's just evident he thinks highly of her. She doesn't need some kind of special office or title in order to be a servant. In fact, I've known many women, many sisters even here in this congregation, who work tirelessly in the church. And they do not need, they do not want some kind of special recognition. They don't want some kind of a special name badge or some kind of title to put on their business card. No, they just want to serve. They want to follow the example of Jesus who modeled for us what it means to serve when He got down on His knees and He washed dirty feet in John the 13th chapter. And so Paul goes on to say about Phoebe, not only is she delivering this letter it seems, but look as well at verse 2. Paul talks about how she has been a patron of many and even a patron of Him as well. The idea of being a patron, your translation might say a sponsor, that was so important in New Testament times. Because things like travel expenses and papyrus, and ink, and quills, and all those kinds of materials and things, and parchment, all that stuff, that was expensive. It wasn't you know, just as cheap as just going down to the dollar store and getting you a 90-page you know, leaflet and notebook paper. That's, that's not the way that worked in New Testament times. Paul would have needed funds in order to do that important work, and it seems as if Phoebe is helping to fund that important work. It maybe reminds us of some of those good women that you read about in the Gospels who traveled along with Jesus, and that's what they did. They helped provide for His basic needs, food and clothing and those sorts of things. Phoebe 
is that kind of sister. I want you to hold this second thought here about the importance of women because Paul's not done with that. He'll keep emphasizing that throughout these next several verses. Pick up now in verse 3. Paul continues. He spotlights in verses 3, 4, and 5 a couple that we know very well. Verse 3, Greet Prisca, that's Priscilla, and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks... But all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. So here's this wonderful couple, Priscilla and Aquila. We've talked about them already. We've talked about them in our Acts class. In fact, just last year, I preached a whole sermon about this great power couple of the New Testament. We met them in the beginning in Acts chapter 18 and in verse 2. And they're popping up again and again throughout the New Testament. In 1 Corinthians 16, 2 Timothy chapter 4, they had lived in Rome previously... But they had been evicted because of Caesar's decree. And now they've come back. That decree has elapsed and now they're able to come back. They're there in the church at Rome. And you have to just believe this is a glue couple. This is the kind of folks that you want in a congregation. Just kind of helps bond everybody together. Their influence, I think, is just no doubt dripping from the pen as Paul writes about them and commends them here. After Aquila and Priscilla are mentioned, though, then comes just this whole flood of names that are just almost impossible for us to pronounce. And it's hard for us to get any real attachment to because most of these folks we don't know anything else about except what Paul says here. But I do want us to read about these brethren. I do want to hear what Paul had to say. He took the time to write their names in here. Let's take the time to read them. And so look at the end of verse 5. Paul says, Greet my beloved Epineatus, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. You know... Paul doesn't remember everybody that he ever baptized or everybody that he helped lead to Jesus Christ. But he does remember this person. And I wonder if maybe this was somebody who was kind of a first for him in some sense. And I know as a preacher it's hard for me to forget the first person that I ever baptized into Christ. Or the first person that ever came forward during an invitation song. Or the first person that I ever studied with personally and helped lead them to the truth. We, we remember those things. I think Paul remembers this person fondly in that same way. Verse 6 now, greet Mary who has worked hard for you. What a simple statement, yet what a very profound statement to have an apostle say, you are a hard worker. Paul continues on there. Verse 7, Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. Now, that name Junia there in verse 7, it gets some attention because there are some translations that actually refer to this person as an apostle. I, I don't believe we need to refer to them as an apostle. I don't believe that she is an apostle in the sense of Peter, Andrew, James, and John, etc., but she is a woman, she is a sister who once again is very significant to Paul. She is important to his work and his labors in the kingdom. And once again, she represents what many of these women represent. Mary and, and Priscilla and all these others that he's going to mention here. And that is that women are important in the kingdom. And I'm going to great lengths to emphasize that point because far too often the Apostle Paul is labeled as a chauvinist. You get around certain groups of people, you're going to hear folks say, folks who are critical of the Bible, they're going to point to Paul and they're going to say, now that guy didn't have any regard for women. He's a chauvinist pig. You ever read that stuff he wrote in Corinthians about women? Ever read that stuff he wrote to Timothy about women? That guy doesn't get it. I think Romans 16 says otherwise. 
Paul valued these women. These women matter. They matter to him. In fact, in fact, they matter, they matter to everybody. Anybody who would have been associated with these good sisters. In fact, I'll take that a step further. It's not just that these women matter, but all of the people that Paul is mentioning here matter. They matter to God. They matter to Paul. They matter to the kingdom. And I think that's an important note as Paul is closing this letter to try to emphasize the idea of unity. What an important message to help bring about unity, the understanding that every single part of the body matters. We need everybody. And we need everything that you can do to contribute in the work of the Lord. Paul keeps that rolling in verse 8. He says, Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and my beloved Statius. Greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ. I'm probably butchering these names. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Greet my kinsman Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet those workers in the Lord, Tryphania and Tryphosa. Greet the beloved Persis who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord. What a special designation that is, chosen in the Lord. Also greet Rufus's mother who has been a mother to me as well. I can sympathize with the expression there that Paul uses about good sisters in Christ who have served in a mother-like role. I have many of those. Paul says in verse 14, Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes. I know, I know I'm doing a terrible job here. I hope these people will forgive me in heaven someday. Patrobus, Hermas, and the brothers who are with them. Greet Philologus, Julia, Nereus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are within. Now, again, we have trouble pronouncing all those names and we kind of wonder, all right, let's just hurry up and get on with it. This is kind of like, like at the end of a gospel meeting when the preacher gets up and before he begins the, the final lesson, he wants to say a bunch of thank yous and say all these people's names. Thanks to this couple for taking me out to eat. Thanks for these folks for their hospitality. Thank you to the preacher and thank you to the elders and thank you to the people who, who kept me up for the week. And we're just kind of saying, like, come on, come on, come on, just, just get with it. But when you have been on this side of the goodness and the kindness of others, when you have been on the side, you've been the recipient of the blessings that come from your brothers and your sisters in Christ, you just feel like a heel if you didn't say something every now and then. And that's what Paul's doing here. He's taking some time to acknowledge these people. Think about how these people must have felt as they heard their name being read in the assembly. The scroll is unrolled. This is the Roman epistle. And some brother gets up to read it and they get to chapter 16, or at least what we know is chapter 16. And all of a sudden, names are being mentioned specifically. Maybe there would have been some folks who would have kind of blushed a little bit at first. Whoa, I'm not used to hearing my name spoken out loud in church. But over time, you have to imagine those folks would have felt great pride. They would have felt a great closeness to Paul and they would have felt great importance of the work that they were doing in Christ Jesus. And that's because what they were doing was important. Now, of course, we could go through that list and we could try to make specific applications out of every person individually. In fact, what that would really involve is just kind of just stating the obvious. We could say things like, well, we want to be beloved in the Lord like Ampliatus was. Or we need to be in, approved in Christ like Apelles was. Well, okay, 
Duh. Yeah, we get that. That's pretty obvious. However, I think if we actually explore these names a little bit closer, we actually come to find out something that is very, very helpful for us as we think about this congregation at Rome. There's been exhaustive lists of ancient names that have been compiled in legal documents, in inscriptions, in various records that archaeologists have dug up, various records of various sorts, and they've been indexed. And those lists of names have been analyzed and they've been studied very carefully so that scholars and sociologists and other learned people in that field, they're able to know more about the culture of the first century, the culture of Rome, And they can learn a lot about that just by looking at the names that were used in that society. Wherever names happen to appear, like for example on a a bill of sale for a slave, or maybe in a list of various leading officials or senators, it actually can be very, very enlightening. And so for example, in the first century, names often signified status and social standing. Scholars know, for example, that names like Urbanus, and Priscilla and Aquila and Rufus are never associated with slavery. Those are not slave names. Those are the names of free people. Whether that be people who were born free, or people who maybe were born as slaves but then gained their freedom later on. Whereas on the other hand, names like Nereus and Hermes and Persis and Herodian, Tryphosa, Tryphena and Amplius Those are actually all very common slave names. That means then that those names of those people in Romans chapter 16 are very, very likely the names of slaves. Because if they weren't the names of slaves, if they were not slaves themselves, then they would have ended up changing their names. Once you get out of slavery, one of the first things that you do is you change your name so that you're no longer associated with that slavery anymore. And so what Romans 16 is helping us to understand is It's kind of the makeup of that group. We've talked at length in the first 15 chapters. We've got Jews, and they're coming together with Gentiles, and they're trying to mix together and to be the church. Okay, that's a huge hurdle. But can we add another layer on top of that? Not only do we have Jews and Gentiles, but we've also got a bunch of slaves in that congregation. We've got some folks who are free people, some of whom may have been born free, some of whom may have been slaves but then became free later on. Maybe those people would have really identified with the people who are slaves. And you have all those people from all those different backgrounds and they're trying to come together and to be unified. That's quite a mix, isn't it? That's quite a blend. This is not like we often see here in kind of in this part of Kentucky, lots of rural congregations where when you go around and visit, you come to find out that like 90% of the church is like one family. Like everybody's all related. I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I'm just saying that that's more common for us here in these parts. But in the church at Rome, this is a very diverse group. we got people coming from all kinds of walks of life. Think about all the different ideas, all the different uh, ways of thinking that they would have had to come together and somehow figured out how to have unity. And yet Paul identifies all of them. And he is confident that they can have that unity unity. In fact, we know that because of what he says kind of in summary there at the end of that section in verse 16 where Paul then says, greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. I'm going to have you notice that there are actually two parts to that statement there, that first sentence. There's two parts to it and I want you to notice both of them. First of all, there is the greet one another. That's the command. 
That's the fixed part. That's the part that there's, there's no negotiating about. Paul says, you have to greet one another. But then the second part is the custom. And it varies when he says, do that with a holy kiss. And what I want to emphasize here is that that part, the greet one another part, you and I don't have any, we don't have any say about that. That's not optional equipment for us. That is a command of an apostle which carries the same authority as a command from the Lord Himself. We must greet one another. Now, the part that we have some latitude with is that second part, the holy kiss. Because I do believe that that was a custom. That was a cultural thing in that day and in that time. In fact, if you were to go and you were to visit over in, uh, over in Rome today, well, it would still be customary in that place and in that area to, yes, greet your brothers and sisters with a holy kiss. For us in America, though, yeah, that just doesn't always fit. So what would the holy kiss be for us? Well, maybe that would just be a, a good strong handshake. Or maybe a nice soft handshake, whichever you prefer. I'm thinking about Doyle. Doyle gives those big strong handshakes. Boy, don't let Doyle get a hold of your knuckles. Man, he can do some damage on you. Maybe it's a, maybe it's a hug. Greet one another with a holy hug. I've patented the side hug. I've got like a spot right here. It's just made for folks to just kind of come right into, and I'll just come right. I got my arm, I can come over top of you, and you just fit right in there, and we can do a perfect side hug. I like a good side hug. I'm not opposed to a front hug, but I like a good holy side hug. I want you to see, though, this is talking about more than just a gesture. This isn't about some kind of initiation thing. Oh, you got to do the secret handshake or the secret hug to let people know that you're in and you're part of the church. That's not what this is. This is a greeting of affection, a greeting of warmth. This is the kind of thing that reflects a very special bond between God's people. When Doyle Howard comes to me and he, hold, he stretches those fingers out and we clasp hands and do that handshake, you know what? It means something. If you've been on the receiving end of that handshake as a brother or sister in Christ, you know as well that it means something. It's very different than when that handshake is given to some worldly person. But when it comes like that, that's a brother to a brother. I think that's the holy kiss. I think that's the greeting that Paul is pressing for here. We need to be people who are going to express that acceptance of one another and show that unity to one another even in how we greet each other. Now I'm going to say once again as I look at those first 16 verses. If a church as diverse as the church at Rome was, if Paul thinks that they can be unified, then what church can't be? What excuse could we ever have or any other congregation of God's people ever have to not be able to get along and work together as we journey toward heaven? Paul talks about that and he emphasizes that one final time so that folks understand what the message of this letter is all about. That then leads to these next few verses where Paul then gives some final warnings and final greetings. Read with me, if you will, beginning in verse 17. I appeal to you, brothers. The word appeal is a strong word. I'm appealing to you to please watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but they serve their own appetites. 
And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the heart of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you, but I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent and as to what is evil. Now, verse 17, if you're reading from one of the old translations, it was always translated as mark them that cause division. And the way that was read and understood for the longest time is that churches believed that they needed to mark a false teacher or someone who was a troublemaker. And usually that marking meant we need to get up in front of everybody, stand behind the microphone in the pulpit, and we need to make some kind of a public announcement that we, as the Lakeside Church of Christ, we have marked that individual. I should tell you, I just really don't think that's what Paul is going for here. Maybe it could culminate to that. Maybe that's something that would need to be done. But I don't think that's what he's talking about here. I think the way that it's translated here in the ESV and the other more modern translation, I think it makes it more simple when he says, take note of those people. Maybe another way of saying that, keep your eye on that person. You need to be very careful. You need to be watchful. We talked about this in the high school class this morning. You need to keep a close watch on people like that. This congregation needs to be told, hey, watch out for that fellow. This is a plea one final time to guard and to protect unity. Don't allow somebody to slip in there and start saying things, teaching things that are going to end up fracturing and disrupting that unity. Paul will do that in Acts the 20th chapter as he talks with those Ephesian elders and is about to bid them farewell. He's going to tell them, be on the watch. Be looking out for people who would creep in and would lead people astray, people who would devour the flock. Paul says, you watch out for these people even in that Roman church. Don't let somebody come in and destroy it. Paul doesn't want anybody to be deceived by these smooth talkers. He mentions in verse 18 about those who are, who are naive. You know, in every congregation you got folks who are at different levels of maturity. And you got some who are going to be very keen and they're going to be very on guard all the time for that kind of thing. But then you'll have others in the congregation who are not as mature. They've not grown in the faith as much yet. They might be new converts. And as a result, those people oftentimes are just like, I mean, they're just prey to a wolf. And so Paul says you need to protect them. You need to be protecting the unity that you enjoy. Maintain that unity. In fact, in verse 19, Paul talks there that they shouldn't put up with those evildoers. Don't allow that kind of thing to go on. You need to be mindful there in verse 19 when he talks about being wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. I think maybe there's something in there as well about you want to be taking some steps and taking some precautions so as not to give wrong impressions to people out in the world. And of course, Paul always likes to encourage folks with perseverance. And I think he does give some perseverance with these tough instructions in verse 20 when he basically says in verse 20, listen... It's not going to be very long. Verse 20, he says, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Yeah, there's going to be times you might have to deal with some of these false teachers, and people who cause problems. But the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. I don't think Paul's use of the word soon here necessarily means that he's teaching that oh, Jesus is going to return like you know in the next five minutes. No, that seems like that would run counter to some of the stuff Paul teaches in Thessalonians, for example. I think the idea here of soon, or it won't be very long, Paul's just looking at the big picture. Because in the big picture, when we look at the whole course of human history, isn't it true? 
that it isn't going to be very long. This whole project called planet earth, it's all going to be wrapped up. And very soon, how long do we get to live? Three score and ten, four score, if we're fortunate and blessed with good health. That's just a blip. It's nothing. And so very soon we can expect that God is going to take care of things and He's going to bring His people home. It's encouragement to just keep on keeping on. Which then leads to Paul saying some more greetings here from some other folks beginning in verse 21. He says, Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. So do Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsmen. When we get to Acts chapter 20 and in verse 4 in our Wednesday night study, we're going to find out that Timothy was actually with Paul in Corinth at the time that he wrote this letter. And verse 21 just harmonizes well with that. We really don't know anything else about these other brothers. Timothy we know an awful lot about, but these other brothers, this is really all that we know. Maybe the Jason here is the Jason that we met a couple of chapters ago in our Acts study. Maybe a different Jason. Verse 22, Tertius, excuse me, I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Now, I think I even said earlier in this lesson, Paul is putting the pen to the parchment and he's writing this letter. But actually, this is one of the occasions where Paul actually utilizes a scribe. And Tertius here actually gets his name into the holy record as being the one who is the scribe for Paul. No doubt Paul is giving him the words to write down. Tertius isn't just writing what he wants to. He's writing what Paul tells him as Paul is guided along by the Holy Spirit. But hey... Here's a guy who was able to slip his name into the Holy Bible and there it is for all time. Verse 23 now, Gaius, who is host to me, and to the whole church greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer. This may be actually the same fella that we're going to, I think we'll, we'll look at this coming Wednesday night in our study uh, as we're in Acts chapter 19 talking about the people there in Ephesus. Could be somebody uh, there. And then our brother Cortus, they all greet you. And so here's all these brothers that once again, Paul wants them to know, look, you folks in the church at Rome, you're not the only Christians there. you got brothers and sisters over here on the other side of the world. And we're all trying to serve Jesus Christ. We're all trying to go to heaven. That grand reunion that we will have there. Which then leads to this final paragraph in the epistle of the Romans. And that is this summation, or what your Bible might even have a little heading that calls it a doxology, where Paul sums everything up in verse 25 when he says, Now to him... To him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith, to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. Those three verses there are actually one continuous sentence. And it is a continuous thought. It's a doxology or it is a prayer for God's glory. A doxology was simply uh, an offer of praise to God. And it seems as if sometimes maybe those were actually used as, as psalms, as, as, as spiritual songs that were sung by the church. And notice how Paul once again there in verses 25 and 26, he makes reference of the mystery that he knows has been revealed to him, and he preaches this revelation, verse 25, that God wants Jews and Gentiles together as one people. And one more time in verse 26, Paul emphasizes that when he says, all nations. And then he closes that out by actually doing something that kind of bookends this book. 
Back at the beginning of Romans, Paul talks about the obedience of faith. And here once again as he closes out the book, he talks about the obedience of faith. And Paul says in the beginning of Romans that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God with power through His resurrection. And now he closes the letter by placing Jesus where He belongs in His rightful position as being the recipient of glory by His people forever and ever. Amen. And so with that, Paul, he lays down his pen, or Tertius lays down his pen. And in a few moments, the ink will dry. And that parchment, that piece of papyrus, it will be rolled up and it will be sealed. And the sister Phoebe will then carry that off into Rome and it will then find its place in New Testament history. And it will become one of the greatest and most influential letters ever written. Among Paul's incredible writings, I'm not trying to rank any of them, but amongst Paul's writings, it is a masterpiece and it is a crowning achievement. And it has been my privilege to be able to study through it with you this year. What does this epistle mean though? What has Paul said? I think really in these last verses, verses 25, 26, and 27, Paul sums up what Romans is all about. It's what we've seen time and again throughout this great book. And that is that God's people must be united so that we can do what verse 27 says, and that is glorify God together. That's the call of the gospel. To the Jew first and then also to the Greek, it is the power of God unto salvation. Why are we saved? We are saved so that we can glorify God together. Now I said last week that I actually think that this is a very fitting final sermon for me to preach here at Lakeside. Because just as Paul concludes his letter by acknowledging just a whole bunch of people who are very, very important and very, very special to him, I feel very compelled to do the same tonight. As Tiffany and I and the girls prepare next week to begin our new work down in Nashville, I got to thinking, what if I could send a letter to the church at Lakeside? What would that sound like? How exactly would that read? Well, maybe, maybe it would read a little something like this. To all those at Lakeside who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I commend to you our brother Adam and our sister Aaron, who are servants of the church and who have been a helper of many and of myself as well. Greet David and Stacy, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the brethren give thanks as well. Greet also the three good kids that came from their house. Greet my beloved brother Dylan, who was the first convert here during the summer of 2018. Greet Tom and Carolyn, who have worked very hard for you for many, many years. Greet Danny and Kathy, my kinsmen, literally, and fellow laborers in the gospel. They are well known to the brethren, and they were in Christ before me. Greet Tanya, my beloved sister in the Lord. Greet Gary, my fellow worker in Christ, and his wife, my beloved sister Barbara. Greet Susan, 
who is approved in Christ. Greet all those who belong to the Harris family. There's a lot of them. Tell them that I will miss singing hymns with them very much. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the Adkins family. Greet those workers in the Lord, Randy and Janet, who have served the brethren faithfully. Greet the beloved Sandy, who has encouraged me often with her talent to use words. Greet the Moors and the Howards, but don't let Doyle squeeze your hand too hard with that handshake. Greet all the Hamiltons. There are way too many of them to name one by one. But they are very special to me. And make sure Silas gives you a high five when you greet him. Greet my beloved sister Sharon and the McDonald family and have them send me pictures of that new grandbaby when it's born later this year. Greet Eva, who is chosen in the Lord. And greet also Doris, who has been like a mother to me. Greet Josh and Ashley, whose friendship in Christ has made me considerably sharper. Greet Lisa and Zoe, who have been so kind to my girls. Greet Glenn and Kathy, who have lifted me up when I have felt weak. Greet Terry and Diane, who have been gracious to me through the years. Greet Cody and Amanda, who are as dear to us as a brother and a sister could possibly be. Greet the Weavers and the Duns and the Thompsons, who I hope to know better in the years to come. Greet all the children. Greet all the teenagers. Greet all the shut-ins. Greet all of those whom we love in the Lord and any that I have failed to name by name. May the God of peace be with you all. I really don't even know how to extend the invitation of the Lord after studying Romans 16 thinking about these things. Maybe the way to do that is to just simply stress what a blessing it is to be a part of God's family. I think Romans 16 really emphasizes that idea. In fact, last week Cody said to me, asked me if, if we ever thought about singing that song that we have in the hymnal, number 643, God's Family. I led it once years ago on a singing night and it didn't go very good. It's a difficult song to try to lead, and tonight it would be really difficult to try to sing that song. But I will read a line or two from that song. We're part of the family that's been born again, part of the family whose love knows no end. For Jesus has saved us and made us his own. Now we're part of the family that's on its way home. When a brother meets sorrow, we all feel his grief. When he's passed through the valley, we all feel relief. Together in sunshine, together in rain, together in victory through His precious name. And though some go before us, we'll all meet again, just inside the city as we enter in. There'll be no more parting, because with Jesus we'll be, together forever, God's family. And sometimes we laugh together, and sometimes we cry. Sometimes we share together heartaches and sighs. Sometimes we dream together of how it will be when we all get to heaven, God's family. I want to be there. I want you to be there. It's hard to read those words and even sing those words 
when you don't have the assurance of being in the family of God. You can change all that, though, this evening. We offer to you the invitation of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is an opportunity. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter where you come from. It doesn't matter how different and diverse your background may be from everybody else in this room. That's okay. God wants you. We want you. Heaven wants you. If we can help somebody tonight to put Jesus on in the waters of baptism, we're ready to do that. If we can help somebody tonight to repent of sin and turn back to the Lord and serve Him in a better way, we're ready to do that. We're ready as well just to pray with somebody. If you just need some encouragement, need your hands lifted up, this is a family here that wants to help each other to go to heaven. Can we help you to do that tonight? If so, would you make your way down front? Do that right now while we stand and while we sing.